Do you see it now? Or should we finish this on the board? Son of a bitch. to me is the same as the idea of white, you know, it just doesn't exist. It's a, a fiction that we've created for whatever reasons. And I think, you know, all of those fictions have stopped serving us. And so nobody's normal. There is no way of being in the world that we all have to hold up and uh, aspire to. Welcome to Intrinsic, a podcast about the innate value of human beings and the motivation that drives us. I'm your host, Keiko Sono, recording from Socrates, New York. Today's episode is a very personal and special one. I talked with a film producer, William Horberg, whose filmography includes such iconic works as The Queen's Gambit, The Kite Runner, Talented Mr. Ripley, Cold Mountain, and Milk. He and I are connected in many interesting ways, but I think what matters to us the most is our love and commitment for art. Many of us think of the movie director as the primary creator of a film, but producers often have a lot to do with its integrity. Bill is certainly a producer of such caliber. His wife, Elsa Mora, who unfortunately could not join us in the conversation today, is also an artist of profound sensitivity. I am honored and delighted to bring to you the stories that will shine a light on the person who gave birth to so many wonderful films. Bill, welcome. Welcome to Intrinsic Podcast. This is such... Uh, I don't know, it's hard to describe how I feel right now. Um, I don't know how long I'm going to keep uh, doing this podcast, but no matter how long I do it, I know that this will stay one of my highlights. So thank you so much. Uh, thanks for having me, Kiko. I'm happy to be here talking to you. Yeah. So I usually have two to three guests for vibrant conversation, but with you, I wanted to do this one-on-one because we connect on so many different levels that I think highlight the unique quality of the Hudson Valley and our community, how we interact with each other, no matter what your background is or you know the, any kind of differences in class. Um, culture, whatever, and we seem to encourage collaboration and cooperation and interaction. So I don't know, I'll just let this conversation flow because we have a lot of interesting stories to share. (laughs) Yeah, you don't know that I'm partially Japanese, do you? (laughs) No, I didn't. (laughs) You're kidding, right? (laughs) I am. (laughs) So you are a film producer. An exec, more of an executive film producer. I well, maybe we'll, we can talk about the difference. Yeah, no, between. that's a good yeah. question. Um, yeah. Uh, so the role of the producer uh, is, in some ways, uh, misunderstood. I would say by the public at large, uh, not 
for any fault of theirs, but because it's been so ill-defined and uh, the producing credit has been given to such a wide variety of people with all different kinds of skill sets and who've made different contributions to a, a project. Um, I actually have been the chairman of the Producers Guild of America uh, in New York uh, for the last four years. And this is an organization of about 8,000 producers uh, across film, television, new media. And they've made, put a lot of work into trying to actually make the title of producer line up with the actual job of being a producer uh, and the responsibilities that come with that. And not to get bogged down on this, but it's a little different in film and television. So in television, the executive producer is really the uh, creative and uh, engine and kind of financial responsibility. Um, in film, it's the produced by credit of just producer that is the more significant credit. Um, executive producers could be financiers. Uh, they could be people that the producer hires who actually do the kind of nuts and bolts uh, line producing work. Uh, so I don't know, it's a, it's, it's a very unusual job. Uh, it kind of encompasses so many different things uh, in the uh, lifespan of a project um, that, you know, it, it and it kind of takes a village to get these projects made. So, uh, I mean, the movie that I'm just in the process of finishing right now, I think there are 25 people who have various uh, credits that have the word producer in it, co-producer, associate producer, executive producer, producer, uh, which is not super uncommon these days. You know, it, it just takes a lot of different contributions from different people to get anything to happen. And which part of that role do you consider yourself as your main role? Well, the producer can be entrepreneurial. You know, it's the person who uh, typically generates the project, either from an idea or a source of a book or a story or a news article or a person's true story or life. Um, often, you know, hires the writer, uh, develops the script, sometimes finds the director, sometimes the writer is the director. Um, but you're kind of involved in the genesis uh, and kind of uh, giving birth to this project and trying to uh, push its way into a marketplace uh, that, you know, can be receptive or hostile or somewhere in between. Um, and, you know, it, it usually takes uh, a, a good deal of time, certainly in the film world, you know, to get a script that is working just as a piece of drama, uh, and then to find the right elements um, is, is the terminology people use. So uh, in some ways, I, I like to say it's very simple, or I could reduce it to something very simple. You know, you need a script, you need the director, 
you need some actors and you need the money. So it really takes those four things, but it's very hard to get all four of those things at the same time. And it's funny how you can have easily three out of the four in almost any combination. You know, I've had projects where I've actually had the money and the script and the director, but we couldn't find the right actors. I've had, you know, uh, often script, director, and actor, but can't find the money. Uh, I've developed things where actors were interested, but couldn't find the right director to pair with them. Uh, so that's the, the art of it, you know, really is trying to uh, what I like to call build a house of cards in a windstorm. <laughs> wow. And you've managed to do it time and time again. <laughs> That's very impressive. And did you set out to being a producer in the beginning? Is that what you wanted to do? Or how did you come to choose this career? No, it, it was a little more circuitous. Uh, I went to music school, Kiko, and uh, I play music still. Um, uh, I went to a liberal arts university for a year, but I transferred to a full-time music school in Boston. Oh, Berkeley. Uh, but I, yeah, at Berkeley. I went to Berkeley. Uh, I dropped out, and through kind of unusual uh, circumstances or karma, I don't know what you'd call it, uh, I ended up opening a movie theater in Chicago with a close friend of mine uh, from high school, and he was my roommate in college. And so we didn't really know what we were doing, but we knew that there was a big scene of these movie theaters that showed old movies and foreign movies and specialized films in Boston, and there really wasn't anything like that in Chicago. Uh, this was in the late 1970s and you could really only see movies on television or in movie theaters uh, it was just at the beginning of home video and you know kind of vhs cassette rentals uh, so we started this business i mean i was 19 and my friend was 21 and we took over what had been the playboy movie theater in chicago it actually had bunny logo carpeting uh, but it was closed. It had gone out of business. Um, and we were showing, you know, uh, Hitchcock and Truffaut and uh, some contemporary films, you know, that were like foreign art films. Uh, but mostly we were like three double features a week. And so it was kind of a cinema paradiso, <laughs> you know, uh, experience and place and you know, it taught me a lot about running a business and um, and also programming. We were writing notes. So that was kind of the beginning of my pivot, I would say, into the world of cinema. Um, and then when the theater closed, uh, the manager of the theater and I, we were really guys who like printed up business cards that said producer, <laughs> but we had never produced anything. <laughs> But we thought, you know, we're going to give it a go and just try to see, you know, we have stories to tell. And um, there was a feeling at that time, even though this was many years before Sundance, but there was a kind of beginning of this idea of independent American cinema a little outside of Hollywood. 
And uh, I know you have your own history with this, but, you know, when Jim Jarmusch made Stranger Than Paradise, when Spike Lee uh, made She's Gotta Have It, that was very unusual. You know, that was, I mean, John Cassavetes maybe was the precursor of all that. Um, So we were kind of caught up in that spirit. And uh, we started trying to make things from Chicago which was a little unusual you know we were inventing the wheel in that place uh but we managed to do some things just by pure uh bullheadedness i would say uh and because of my interest in music the first things were music oriented i I did a series about the blues and i uh, organized to film all these different blues musicians. Uh, It was Muddy Waters, one of his last big uh, public concerts at an outdoor music festival called Chicago Fest. Uh, We did one of the early concerts for MTV, who were just then coming on the air and becoming a cultural, you know, phenomenon, which was a cheap trick. A uh, very popular uh, rock group that was actually from a small town outside of Chicago. That's um, funny. I saw them um, at you know that their album live at Budokan. Yes, I was there. No, <laughs> as a fourteen-year-old. You're kidding. No. <laughs> <laughs> I we was have, screaming. You could probably hear me. I could, <laughs> uh, we have more in common than we even yeah, imagined. Yeah. Uh, and so I did a couple of short films. I did some music videos. I I did a documentary about the World Series of Poker in Las Vegas <laughs> that I found to be a fascinating world. Um, but I, I realized at some point, you know, if I'm seriously going to try to create uh, content in any uh, format or genre, you know, I probably need to get out to L.A. and um, kind of immerse myself in a place where the industry is. And uh, so I moved to uh, L.A. in the mid 80s. And I thought I had a job when I headed out there and I got off the plane and in typical fashion, the movie that I was going to work for had fallen apart Mm. and lost, you know, its funding. And so in some kind of pity, I would say the executive uh, who had been trying to help me offered me a job uh, reading screenplays which was kind of an entry-level position, and it was a non-union job, so it was open to people like me. Um, and so I ended up reading and kind of writing book reports on, I don't know, a thousand screenplays just to kind of pay the rent and put some food on my table. But in retrospect, that was a great you know, uh, education Uh, for me and because I didn't go to film school and I dropped out of college I kind of think of that as my own university experience having to read all those scripts and try to analyze stories and um, it kind of forced me to get to know uh, the marketplace a little bit and which companies were looking for what kind of uh, films to make and um, and I, you know, met other people like me who were 
people in their early 20s trying to break into the business. Um, and so at the end of that year, I almost felt like I won the lottery, but I, I got a, a creative executive job at Paramount Pictures. Uh, so I was kind of like the low man on the studio totem pole, but I was uh, inside the gate. You know, I was working for one of the six major studios in Hollywood. And um, of course, at that time, you know, they were the uh, kings of the universe. There was no Google, there was no Apple, <laughs> there was no Netflix. Uh, it was, you know, Warner Brothers and Fox and Paramount and all the old uh, media uh, dynasties. So it was pretty cool the first time I went on the lot, you know, because they have that Sunset Boulevard gate, you know, which is the old entrance on the Bronson Street. And I was like, wow, I really am here, mm -hmm. you know, in this uh, <clears throat> kind of iconography. Wow. Um, going back to your job as a script reader, so you'd read all these scripts, and then what would you do? You, you were So you were the first gatekeeper for these scripts, and so what kind of metrics were you applying to these scripts? Well, that's really interesting. They gave us a little bit of a kind of handbook uh, on how to do this. So, you know, the first thing was you had to create a, a one or two sentence description of what is this and it really forced you to kind of say what is this you know and how would you tell somebody in a sentence what this is in a way that made it seem interesting and compelling so just the exercise of doing that was a very useful exercise in terms of thinking about uh, marketing really you know what is the premise what's the hook what's the the basic idea of this and can it be uh, boiled down and communicated in a way that is accessible to a, a wide audience you know so that was number one then you would do a kind of second part which was more like a couple of paragraphs uh, and that was often very challenging you know like to take a 120 page story and summarize it in a couple paragraphs, it would often expose the number of tangents and uh, kind of extraneous uh, characters and information that the writer had, you know, put into the script, you know, that um, he hadn't yet successfully kind of boiled it down to uh, the thing that any script needs to be where every character and every scene is essential. You know, you got to okay. have something where you can't cut it out or you wouldn't be able to, you know, continue. Um, and so finally, then you would write a kind of uh, op-ed piece or something, you know, a, a, your own subjective analysis and it was kind of talking about structure it was talking about tone it was talking about uh, characters whether you know there were roles that stood out that seemed uh, rich enough to attract um, actors you know movie stars would you know this is a great role for x or or y 
uh, often they'd want you to kind of compare it to other movies in terms of genre uh, and successful movies in the genre and you know does this compete at that level or does it come up short so yeah it, it, I really I learned a lot uh, I mean a very quick funny anecdote the very first script I was given was written by a brilliant English writer who many years later I ended up working with and being the executive on one of his films. And it was for a movie that got made that is a wildly original, unique and irreverent movie called How to Get Ahead in Advertising about a British advertising executive who has a boil on his neck that grows into a second head and becomes a, a kind of heckling alter ego. And it was uh, an amazing piece of writing. It was really like a Kafka-esque uh, black comedy. And I was completely paralyzed because I thought, you know, on one hand, this could be perceived as the least commercial idea ever. On the other hand, I can't deny the talent and the artistry of the writer. And I got really caught up in like, well, why have they given me this particular script? And is this a kind of test? And, you know, what's the right answer mm -hmm. to kind of show that I, you know, am a person who has some sense of the movie business and uh, commercial taste and mainstream audience or to show that I'm a person who's courageous enough to mm -hmm. uh, champion uh, something that seemed very far outside of the system. And so I, I, my memory is I kind of split the baby somehow and uh, was able to talk about the, uh, the originality of it and at the same time kind of equivocate about whether it was a movie that this particular company should make or not. Uh, but then years later, I made a movie with this guy. And I was telling him that I was like the script reader who had done the coverage on his his screenplay. That's a great story. And I bet there are a lot of stories like that in this industry. So we have another thing in common. <laughs> so, you know, I, I was not really, I wouldn't say that I was ever really in the industry, but I did happen to work with Jim years ago, just from very strange coincidence. Um, so I worked with him on Mystery Train. I worked for the executive producer who produced Mystery, Mystery Train, a Japanese person, Japanese man. And after that, this guy, Joe Hirata, he received a lot of scripts from around the world. And so I became his script reader. Wow. And, you know, I read Jim's script for um, Dead Man. At that time, it was called ghost dog and he changed the dead man so i was one of the first ones to read the script and um i also w read uh, the piano jane campion the piano yeah the piano and a couple others that really stood out and when i read jane campion's script i knew that that was a you know Oscar or some kind of award material. The way she put together the script, you know, it was bound beautifully with a lot of photos. 
And it was like completely different from other scripts that we received. I wonder, did you have something like this? Did you come across scripts that you just knew that was going to succeed in some one way or the other? Well, they were rare, I would say. Uh, I think because of the nature of the companies that I was reading for, and also I was kind of a new new guy. I don't think I was being given like the cream of the crop to read. So my experience was 90% of the time reading scripts by writers who I didn't particularly admire, who I didn't feel had done the necessary work. And it would get very frustrating to me because I felt like I was working really hard to even try to make sense out of their stories in order to uh, synopsize them and present them to somebody else. And uh, so, but that, it taught me so much, you know, it, it really, uh, that then when you'd find somebody who uh, was a storyteller, a natural storyteller, you just knew immediately, you know, from the first couple of pages that you were in the hands of somebody who had that ability to grab your interest and to uh, pique your curiosity and to uh, describe a world and describe characters and have you know uh, distinct voices for each character and to suck you in you know and even to this day it's just a kind of uh, natural selection process Kiko because the scripts that you end up loving are the ones that you have no problem just turning the pages because you want to know what happens next and you know you read it and you feel like it took you 10 minutes or something because you're so engrossed in it and, but if you find yourself you know where each page feels like it weighs you know 500 pounds <laughs> and you're on page 30 and you look at your watch and you're on page 36 and 42 you know the, it, it already is screaming at you that uh it's not for you and look it doesn't mean there haven't been successful many 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 successful movies made on scripts that uh, i didn't connect to for whatever reason um but not because of the craft or the lack of craft in the writing, more just it wasn't my cup of tea or, um, mm, you know, yeah. I would never make that kind of movie. I, I always felt like I somehow had to be part of the audience for the things that I would at least advocate for, or if not try to make myself. <clears throat> Otherwise, I didn't have a compass, you know, to know if we were going in the right direction or not. Wow. Yeah, there are so many elements that go into filmmaking. So even just the definition of success is different according to, you know, who you're talking to. So, you know, I can imagine the you know, complexity of what you were doing. Um, when I was reading that Jane Campion's script, just like you said, I could not put that down. My heart was pounding in that scene where, you know, it's a spoiler, you know, I'm sure most people have seen it already, you know, where the character gets her fingers cut off. I was like, oh my gosh, I remember that moment. And it was like watching a movie, except it was in written words. So that was a really eye-opening experience to me. 
And I, I told Joe that, hey, this one is going to win awards. This one will be successful. But I knew, you know, he was a very eccentric guy, Joe, and very stubborn. And I just knew that that was not his cup of tea, like you said. He, he was a little misogynistic in a way, you know, like a lot of Japanese men are because of their, you know, upbringing. And I just could not see the connection. So it didn't happen. But, you know, the film went on to win Oscars. So. <laughs> Well, I would say on the list of adjectives, probably the most common for Hollywood producers that, you know, maybe not at the top of the list, but eccentric and stubborn are probably words that would come up often if you <laughs> if you tried to make a, a list of descriptors. You're listening to The Intrinsic Podcast, produced by Forge Collective. Okay, so you've made a lot of wonderful, wonderful films. Um, I have not, I've only seen a fraction of them in Kite Runner, Milk, Talented Mr. Ripley, and of course, your most successful, I would imagine, and most recent piece, Queen's Gambit. Um, how do you feel about Queen's Gambit? And uh, what's your relationship with that? project well first i'll say the name of my company is actually wonderful film so uh i i can't make a film that's not a wonderful film (laughs) (laughs) um but in terms of queen's gambit uh it's it's been the most amazing journey of my career in so many ways kiko uh one of the longest journeys of my career, for one thing. Uh, it's a book that I got involved in about 20 years ago. And my partner, Alan Scott, who's a Scottish uh, screenwriter and producer and businessman, he got the rights to the book 10 years before I got involved with him. So it was a 30-year journey, literally, you know, from book to screen for him and uh, and <clears throat> and there was always a lot of interest in it from creative people uh filmmakers uh actors uh at one time bernardo bertolucci was talking about maybe doing it um the actor heath ledger actually was going to direct a version of it before he died as his directing debut <clears throat> but it was a very challenging thing to get made as a movie which is what we spent so many years trying to do um it it was not a studio film it was a kind of expensive independent film because of the nature of the story it was a period story takes place all around the world she's always flying off to different tournaments there's a lot of crowd scenes with extras so uh it just never kind of found that sweet spot in terms of the uh marketplace the 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 feeling was this is smart and it's good material but it's just not commercial and it's not going to justify the cost of of getting it made so i mean i could wallpaper my office with the rejection letters that we collected 
<clears throat> you know, for years and years. And even Scott Frank and I uh, went around together 15 years ago when uh, he read the book and loved it and he wanted to do it and we couldn't find a home for it. Um, so it kind of went a little bit onto the back burner for a number of years until Scott later made Godless uh, eight part limited series for Netflix. That's a kind of proto feminist Western. And it was great and it got a lot of acclaim and it was very successful. And Netflix wanted to extend their working relationship with him and said, hey, what do you got next? We'd love to keep working with you. And he called me up and said, are the rights still available to Queen's Gambit? I always loved that book, but I really think the way to make it is as a limited series and not as a movie. And now the world has evolved and it exists a way that that format could be financed and embraced. So uh, in some weird way, even though it took 30 years to get made, it somehow got made at the right time and it certainly came into the world at, at the right moment. So it was really a paradox. Mm. Wow. Well, we're lucky that it worked that way. I, I loved that series. It was, um, you know, we've been, of course, like everybody else, watching a lot of films and streaming services during the pandemic. And even though these services made a lot of films like documentaries and foreign films available to us, there is still, um, you know, conversion to more of a monoculture that is going on. You know, you see a lot of superhero movies, a lot of uh, films that follow the same storylines and same moral messages. Even the look of many of these films kind of have a similar impression. But Queen's Gambit was so different. It's so, you know, of course, it's about a woman. It's about a young woman. It's about chess. <laughs> and it's about teamwork. These elements were put together in a way that I think really spoke to a lot of viewers. Uh, I would say, you know, a lot of women. Uh, what kind of responses have you been getting? Well, I, I totally agree with you, Kiko. And... I think part of the struggle to make it is that, you know, it was kind of swimming against or upstream in the way that our uh, mainstream culture uh, was evolving. Um, I think there has been a kind of reduction. Um, it became a cinema of spectacle uh, for a lot of reasons, uh, economic reasons, um, technological reasons, you know, the technology evolved to the point where we could create any uh, imagined world and make that quite uh, believable. Um, also, you know, it became a global, uh, globalized world and global content tends to speak louder in that language of action. You know, because you don't need the nuances of dialogue and you don't need the cultural specificity of authentic characters. You know, you can create a different kind of more uh, globalized storytelling. 
so all of those trends existed. Also, the uh, revolution of digitization and the internet and the advent of streaming uh, content, it kind of knocked down so many uh, barriers, but also, um, you know, it just shifted everything to, you know, uh, there's a hyper abundance of content, you know, content is consumed across every different kind of screen. Uh, there's not really a primacy of theatrical movies anymore as there were, uh, you know, when we were growing up. Uh, so that's the context for all of this. Um, the Queen's Gambit, for me, is the first thing I've ever made in that streaming world. Mm -hmm. And it was completely extraordinary to have something open in one night in 190 countries and 30 or 40 different languages that it had already been translated into. And to, you know, gain an audience of you know, at, at least a hundred million or more people around the world. So uh, it's been a kind of mind-blowing uh, experience. It's been a wonderful ride. It, it's the best thing to have a sleeper hit, you know, because it really means that word of mouth is what has driven it. And it's the quality of the experience the audience is having, engaging with these characters and engaging with this story and I would say the surprise for so many people who couldn't imagine being interested in a story centered around the uh, chess culture, uh, but it's been completely the opposite. It's driven a huge rise in chess set sales. It's got uh, thousands of young women signing up for chess clubs. The online chess community has grown uh, exponentially. Uh, and of course, you know, for the broader audience that came to see it, it seems to me that, you know, A, Anya's performance is just incredible and you can't take your eyes off her. But B, it really is a story of survival. Uh, it's a story of a woman who isn't just kind of breaking through glass ceilings. She doesn't know glass ceilings exist. It's like she wasn't given the playbook of the rules of how a young girl is supposed to fit into our society, especially at that place and time. And that naivete becomes an amazing strength uh, in a way. And I think it's so uh, touching because she's, her own antagonist, you know, there really isn't a, a villain in this story. It's not, as you said, kind of good guys, bad guys, black and white superhero. Uh, it's somebody who's wrestling with their own demons and somebody who's incredibly gifted, who's dealing with the uh, cost of that gift and the challenges that come with that. And so... I think for me, it just touched on so many things about, as you said, like what is the nature of our humanity and who's different and who's special and, uh, you know, without ever talking about neurodiversity, I think there's a very subtle way that we understand that she's othered 
because of her differences and that she succeeds when she's able to kind of embrace her differences and also allow for the human connection uh, with her with her friends, you know, and that we can't make it uh, as an island. Uh, and I think in the pandemic, more than probably at any other time, this was such a powerful uh, message that people connected to in a very deep way. Oh, yeah, everything that you just cited, I totally agree. You know, those are the things that really, you know, work together to pull me into that series. I, I watched that whole thing with my daughter, who is 23 now. And it kind of became our thing. And it was interesting that we both really identified with the main character and also the context, even though, you know, we're generations apart. And I could identify both with the main character and her mother. And I can't think of any other films that I really felt that I could identify with the main character. And it made me realize how limited our options are as women. You know, there are like of all the films that are out there, there aren't that many films that are written from women's perspective and there are there are even less who really depict that perspective accurately at least to people like me you know like ordinary person i'm not a super you know successful business person or superhero or villain you know any of those so even though of course elizabeth herman was an exceptionally gifted chess player still there were so many elements in that that all of us could relate to so uh, thank you for making that well i gotta give a lot of credit to walter tevis you know because that book had exactly that thing I'm talking about, that somehow from the first page, you get connected to this Beth Harmon. Yeah. And she's really a unique, unusual person because she embodies so many contradictions. You know, she's kind of a killer in some ways, but she's also very sweet and soft in other ways. And, um, you know, as I said, she's naive in some ways and sophisticated beyond her years. Uh, in other ways. And I think that relationship with her mom is so touching because it becomes a real friendship and neither one of them really expect that. Uh, and the mom, you know, as played by Marielle Heller, uh, just gives a brilliant performance. Mm -hmm. I think all of that pain of the options denied to her, the marriage that she's in, the fact that she has this gift of music but was never really allowed to pursue that or explore that. And now she's adopted a young girl who has maybe more opportunities to uh, take advantage of her talents. And all of that was really uh, very touching uh, in the book. And, and, and Scott Frank who's an old, old friend of mine, by the way, Scott and I met in 1986 uh, when I first went to work at Paramount. He was a writer who had an office in the writer's building at Paramount. And he was a young, young screenwriter. And he and I bonded really over our love of books and authors. And 
even though at that time neither one of us knew about Tevis's book, but it was exactly the kind of thing that brought us together. Uh, we would share a lot of like passion for this author, that author. Uh, and so it was very nice for both he and I to kind of reunite after so many decades uh, on this project. And I think it was a real um, confluence of his incredible writing and directing talent and uh, my ability to help him kind of uh, fulfill that vision. After I watched Queen's Gambit, I went back to your filmography and I was I you know it got me even more curious and I saw that you also produced Searching for Bobby Fisher way back in the 90s. So I watched that and I was blown away because it's essentially the same story almost. You know, it's very similar. Um but obviously three decades before. And so this discovery surprised me in many ways. One, I wanted to find out, you know, if this was like a development, your personal passion that happened in the 90s and you carried out three decades later. And also, because I was working with the film director, I always associated the creativity with the film director and not necessarily with film producers, but Obviously, you had this fascination with a similar story that spans decades. So how much is the creativity that goes into filmmaking attributed to producer and how much of that is to director? I'm sure it's case by case, but um, I found that very interesting. Yeah, well, there's a lot to unpack in that uh, question. Um, yeah. Oh, maybe we should explain what Bobby F Searching for Bobby Fisher is about. So Searching for Bobby Fisher is a true story. It's based on a memoir that was written about, by a man named Fred Waitskin about his son, uh, Josh, who discovers a prodigious talent for chess at a very young age. Uh, he's in a private school in New York, and uh, his parents uh, get very involved in his child uh, chess career, uh, and particularly his father finds a lot of, of vicarious, I would say, gratification and pride through his son's amazing talent. And so it's in the whole world of... Uh, child competitive chess and tournaments you know between kids who are eight nine ten eleven years old uh it has a real you know kind of humorous side of how over the top uh, people are in uh, getting involved in children's sports it kind of makes it accessible even beyond chess uh and it's really about parenting and uh kind of how much you learn from your children as much as uh, teach your children and also it really is about these kind of competitive relationships uh among children and the good things that come out of that and also some of the uh, harder things that can come out of that and um 
it was brilliantly adapted and uh, directed by Steve Zalian. And that was really the genesis and the prime motivator of that project. Uh, I was an executive at Paramount. Uh, the producer, Scott Rudin, was a very powerful producer at Paramount. And a number of us were big fans of Steve Zalian. He was really one of the best screenwriters in Hollywood. And we knew that he had the ability to direct, but he hadn't yet found the right project to make his first film. And Scott brought him this book and he loved the book and they came to me and I became the uh, studio executive uh, uh, for it at Paramount. And, you know, it wasn't the most obvious studio movie, uh, but there was support to make it. And, um, you know, Scott probably had uh, a lot of the reason for that, the clout, you know, to kind of push that uh, film through. Um, but my passion for it didn't start from a place of interest in chess. I'm not a chess player. Uh, I didn't really know that much about that world, which is kind of why I enjoyed it, because it was taking me into this microculture that I had no experience of. And I think we love watching process in movies, and we love watching expertise, and we love kind of being thrust into authentic uh, communities of people who can kind of be passionate about almost anything. But if they're so into it, it kind of, we get infected by their, uh, the intensity of their obsession with it, I would say. Uh, so that was how I kind of got into the, that world. And then through the making of it, of course, I met a lot of people in that community. I, we went scouting and uh, we hired uh, an amazing man who's actually a character in the book named Bruce Pandolfini. He, the real Bruce Pandolfini is played in the movie by Sir Ben Kingsley. So that's his character. But Bruce was around in the making of the movie and he was kind of the advisor to Steve, the director, and he would help coach the actors to make them look real in playing the games. So Bruce became the main continuity between Bobby Fischer in the 90s and Queen's Gambit, you know, 30 years later. Uh, again, with Queen's Gambit, I got into it through the book. I loved the novel. I thought the character was remarkable. I, I just was so gripped by the story. And so it was kind of coincidental that it was back in the world of chess. It was a world I was familiar with and knew some of the challenges of how to make cinematic. Um, and Bruce became the first person that I called. And I said, Bruce, it's been a long time, but I know you know the Queen's Gambit, and I think we've got a chance to get it made now at Netflix, and I'd love to have you meet with Scott Frank. So the first lunch, you know, was sitting down with Bruce and Scott, you know, who loved this and wanted to do it, but had a lot of anxiety about the chess, man. Like, how am I going to film this and not have it just be like watching paint dry? And um, I said, well, you got to meet Bruce Pandolfini. You know, he's the master, literally the grandmaster. And, you know, they loved each other immediately. And Bruce 
to my surprise, because I'd known the guy for 25 years, I didn't know that he had been Walter Tevis's consultant when he was writing the book, wow. uh, that the publisher had actually introduced Tevis and Pandolfini, and Bruce spent a couple of months with him advising him on the chess moves so that they were accurate in the in the manuscript and also pandolfini was the one who suggested the title the queen's gambit to walter tevis so it felt really like beautiful karma because we never got to meet tevis but here was bruce who was kind of connected to tevis and therefore connected tevis to us uh, when we set out to make the movie Hmm. you hear these kind of stories of interesting coincidences and karma actually quite a lot in a world of you know arts and anything with creativity and i'm wondering if it's certain sense of aesthetics or whatever reasons that drive us to create a work of art if it's that sense that bring us together like you said Filmmaking is really takes a village. It's 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 like a mini corporation. Every film project is, and when you see the end result in a big screen, everybody feels like you know a little bit of ownership in that, right? I mean that must that must be an amazing experience, especially when you like the film. <laughs> Well, I'd go one step further because I, I've spent so much time doing international production, uh, not by real conscious design. It's just a lot of the things that uh, I was able to get made were stories that were global stories. The Kite Runner, uh, The Quiet American. You know, I've made four films in Italy. I've worked in Serbia. I've worked in Romania <laughs> twice. I mean, even the American Civil War movie, Cold Mountain, 90 or 80 percent of it was shot in Romania. Um, so there you have the extra layer of these international collaborations that can kind of transcend boundaries and transcend cultural differences and transcend language differences. And, you know, it can be quite challenging to kind of manage those differences, but there's something beautiful, too, about the universality of the filmmaking process. Uh, I'll never forget, I was privileged to be part of a delegation from the Academy that got to travel to Iran mm -hmm. in 2009. And we were one of the first Western groups led into Iran you know, since the hostage crisis. And we were meeting with our peers at the Iranian version of their film academy. And, you know, there was a lot of separation. Uh, there was a lot of uh, opportunity, let's say, for kind of misunderstanding and a certain uh, wariness. But as soon as we started talking about the problems common to all filmmakers and producers and directors and crews and actors, it all went away. And we all realized, you know, how incredibly uh, similar our experiences were in, in so many ways. And all it took was a kind of acknowledgement of mutual respect. 
and the fact that we weren't there in a kind of patronizing way from Hollywood to, uh, you know, say that we're here to bring you any kind of knowledge or truth that we, you know, had deep admiration for the Iranian uh, cinema culture and tradition and how uh, far back it extended and how many great, you know, works of art had come out of that uh, uh, community and place. Um, and so, you know, it's a cliche, but uh, I've lived the cliche in terms of how film is such a uh, ambassador in a way. Uh, and there can be an element of cultural imperialism, of course, you know, as kind of Western content dominates the box offices and uh, imposes a certain kind of... Uh, worldview. Uh, but I think a lot of that is changing. Um, you know, I think there's a really big movement of whose story is it and who gets to tell the story and um, how we can watch stories of other people who the camera hasn't traditionally been pointed at and connect to them and empathize with them and clearly the world needs that uh, desperately you know mm. there's so much lack of empathy and so much uh, polarization and division um, so yeah I think this is a, a tool uh, and it's getting into different hands as a tool uh, and I think that that's all good news. I am really happy to hear that because I do see a huge potential in filmmaking as a tool to bring community together. And Laurent also said the same thing. Uh, but and I'm, I'm glad that you see that that is happening because it's hard for me to see the if that that is really happening, actually, you know, I mean, it's it's hard to evaluate from what is available on the streaming service. I do see a lot of good signs, but I also see the domination by big studios. So it's it's hard to predict, you know, where all of these things go. But um, so you you are saying that you see a lot of good things coming out. Like filmmakers are facilitating stories telling from people, and that it. It's going to, um, you know, improve our empathy. So you are seeing these signs? I'm hopeful. I mean, look, uh, there's no question massive change is afoot. You know, it feels like uh, biblical <laughs> mm. uh, and existential in terms of the various crises and threats that we face. And I think we all feel like if we don't get our act together, <laughs> you know, how long are we going to be here? Uh, and so I think there's a lot of energy out there. You know, change can be scary. Uh, change can be a, a force that is positive. Uh, it can also unleash negative forces. So, you know, I don't pretend to have a crystal ball, but I do feel that because the gatekeepers are... Um, 
How do I want to say this? It's like anybody can make anything right now. You, you can shoot something on your phone. You can have a laptop and Final Cut Pro and you can upload it and you can get it on YouTube and you can, uh, you know, if it's interesting to enough people, suddenly you can have a direct relationship with an audience that didn't exist before. There are a lot of incredible abuses that come out of that in the way that social media you know is used to uh, exploit us and divide us and monetize us but it also is a kind of equalizer in terms of storytelling uh, now the consequence is there's just an unbelievable tsunami of content and stories and nobody has the eyeballs or the time to consume it so curators and communities of interest are kind of the key as to how to aggregate enough people around your story uh, to make it viable. Um, I think the downside is it's been very, very hard for artists to monetize mm. their uh, storytelling, whether it's musicians, you know, putting out music or writers writing books or uh, independent filmmakers with independent voices telling stories, um, you know, it's a, it's a very tragic moment, I would say. Uh, it, it's like everything else. There's a small uh, group of elite that are getting over-rewarded, and then there's a vast majority of people that can't even find a way to sustain uh, a life, no. uh, a creative life. Um, so, but I, I do feel like the potential is there and I feel like the energy is there and I feel like people are a little bit less passive, I think, than they've mm -hmm. been. There's a kind of recognition that all these things that we take, took for granted for so long are actually things that can disappear overnight and that we've got to get out there and, and fight for. Yeah, it, it's so true. You know, we have more opportunities to create and share our works than ever before. And yet we have less way of monetizing our creative work than ever. So these are two opposing forces. Uh, the only way I can see is, you know, maybe some kind of basic income for creators or everyone. You know, it's one thing, but, you know, it's probably still not going to be enough. Yeah, I mean, I read, uh, maybe you did too, that book. Uh, oh, man. What is it called? Like 10 Reasons to Disconnect from the Internet Now? <laughs> Something like that. But he had an interesting thing. You know, he said, look, if everybody paid a quarter of a penny for every Google search and that money went back to the people who have created the content that people are searching for, you'd have a ecosystem in which, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg isn't getting $100 billion, but there's a kind of economic redistribution uh, that's being generated by something that right now, you know, we all kind of thought was great that it was free and unfettered and uh, but it actually ended up uh, impoverishing the people who, you know, should participate. You're listening to 
the Intrinsic Podcast, produced by Forge Collective. I just want to talk a f- few more minutes about um, your son, Diego, if we have time, because you and I first met each other because you brought your son to my stop motion animation studio and he was also in the same class as my son (laughs) um, in public school so we were connected in that way and I loved working with your son as I love working with all of my uh, neurodivergent students you know for some reason doing stop motion animation studio attracted a lot of students with autism and some kind of neurodivergent realm and there have been so many (laughs) scenes where I was like almost moved to tears observing these students because they are so serious about their work like one kid he would like bang his head against the wall saying I'm out of ideas and I'm out of ideas and I cried with him I said I hear you I've been there you know and they produce amazing work they you know they're all different but a lot of them most of them have this amazing concentration including your son Diego he he is very very particular about his sense of aesthetics and as an artist I really, really identify with those emotions. So I just really want to see a world where these extraordinary creative people find a way to express and put their creativity to work. You know, I mean, why can't we align such an amazing output with results? Um, I'm sure you've been exploring that. Yeah, Kiko, I mean, I, I couldn't agree uh, more with you. I think that um, the ability to think differently and see the world and experience the world differently has been othered uh, and has been often dismissed and not uh, valued. Uh, but I think these kids have a really unique perspective and the ones that are drawn to creative endeavors and artistic endeavors they're almost just like pure artists it's they're so uncompromising and they're so rigorous and they're very very they of course they they just march to their own drummers you know and uh diego wrote a 150-page manifesto about art when he was 12 years old. It's like an incredible book, and it's just filled with his lists of his favorite artists and talking about what is an artist and what an artist does and why he likes these people, and it blew everybody away. It was like, oh, my God, the amount of depth to his thinking um, and, you know, he doesn't um, always share that much. You know, uh, some of the challenges of autism uh, have to do with communication and reciprocity. And uh, he can be quite uh, private. Uh, he's somebody who seems to have an amazing private comedy going on in his head because he often laughs uh, to jokes that you don't know you know what he's experiencing uh he's developed elaborate rituals around his production of art 
And his whole concept of art, uh, to me, is so avant-garde. You know, he really is almost like a improvising musician um, or... Uh, who are those people who make those elaborate mandelas out of sand mm-hmm. and then they blow them away? Uh, so he sees art as not a permanent thing at all, but as a process. And he's not interested in uh, holding on to his art. He destroys everything that he makes. And so it kind of lives just through the uh, time span of the making of it. Uh, he almost inhales it and uh, hovers his hands over it and you can feel like he's uh, interacting with it on some plane of energy that you know we probably can't uh, perceive the way he does Uh, so it's quite inspiring uh, uh, in some ways and uh, of course you know not to at all diminish the challenges that uh, come with, um, <clears throat> you know, being on the spectrum and uh, some of the uh, struggles, you know, that he has to kind of make peace with himself and who he is and to uh, kind of accept uh, his differences in, you know, a, a world which is evolving, I would say, but, you know, has mostly stigmatized. Uh, people. Uh, I mean, the whole idea of normal to me is the same as the idea of white. You know, <laughs> it just doesn't exist. It's mm-hmm. a, a fiction that we've created for whatever reasons. And I think, you know, all of those fictions have stopped serving us, mm-hmm. uh, is what I feel. Um, and so nobody's normal. There is no, you know, oh, this is the way of being in the world that we all have to hold up and uh, aspire to you know uh, everybody is different we just label certain parts of those differences um, that you know manifest themselves in uh, ways where those people might need help in certain areas and we tend to stigmatize them so uh, i'm totally with you and uh, and i've been involved with and um, support and deeply, deeply admire other people out there. There are points of light of people uh, who recognize everything that we're saying and have been hard at work and building community and building infrastructure and giving service and giving opportunity. There's an amazing woman in L.A. who's created an organization that has all these kids on the spectrum who are doing titles for all the Marvel comic book movies and God bless Marvel for hiring them. And um, yeah, so I I mean, I try to shine a light on that Mm -hmm. whenever I can. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. And I would love to see more initiatives like that because there's just so much that we can gain from those who shine a light on, you know, the fact that there is no such a thing as normal. You know, once you realize that that could open up a lot of potentials for everyone. Yeah, it's particularly disappointing in the educational world, you know, yes, where absolutely. the public system 
is mandated by law to provide a free education to every child. And there's a, a lot of really good, caring people and infrastructure devoted to uh, trying to create systems for uh, children with special needs. But they can't, they can only go so far with the resources they have. And a lot of those things have been cut back uh, anyway. And then in the private sector, I think there's a fundamental lack of understanding and appreciation of exactly what you just said, how neurotypical kids benefit from being uh, commingled with neurodiverse kids and uh, the benefits for all. Uh, and we've found, you know, mostly, uh, you know, kind of fear and concern about bringing those kids in and how they might upset the apple cart. Um, and so that's an area that I hope, you know, really changes. Well, I think we are in a huge transformational period in so many different fields and so many different levels. And your industry, film making and content creation, you are leading the way with the stories that we're going to tell ourselves, you know, so <laughs> I'm glad that there are people like you who are creating deep human stories. So thank you. And I look forward to seeing more of your creations. All right. Well, thank you for having me, Kiko. It's always a pleasure. It was great. I kind of stumbled into your barn one day and uh, <laughs> discovered you uh, as a hidden treasure here in the <laughs> community. Thank you. William Horberg's hit series, The Queen's Gambit, is available on Netflix. Today's episode was produced by Olivia Menedesi. Intrinsic is a production of Forge Collective, an alliance of creators for radical honesty. Many thanks to John Notar for contributing original music. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and consider making a tax-deductible donation at forgeartcollective.org. Thank you for listening, and tune back in in two weeks. <laughs>